0: Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. Glad you're here online, too. Um, So today is a day that some people have been really excited about. Now, there might be something wrong with those people, but uh, we're going to begin our series on Job. And so I know some people have been asking, and so there's nothing wrong with you. I just, I'm joking. And so most often when we think about the book of Job we kind of we think about it like we approach it with this question of why do bad things happen or or the question of why do bad things happen to good people or why is there evil at all like why does god allow poverty why does god allow pain why does god allow pandemics and, and to be honest, as, as I've been searching for the last number of months through the book of Job, I actually see no answers to these questions. I'm sorry. I'm going to tell you the punchline right now. There isn't clear answers, okay? Or, and there's really no clear answers in all of our sacred writings. In all of Scripture, we don't actually come to grasp why. And in fact, it seems like when we, when we think we can answer those questions that we become like we will see Job's friends becoming, right? They think that they have a handle on the mystery of suffering, but their words fall flat. Job, Job 4, 7 to 8 says, one, uh, Eliphaz says this, he says, Stop and think, do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. Has he lived in the same world you live in? He asked the question, do the innocent die? He assumes that those who do good receive good and those who do evil receive evil and yet what I see happening around us is not that way. I would have to respond to Eliphaz, the innocent are dying at an incredible rate. Just this summer on the Gaza Strip, between August 5th and August 7th, 48 Palestinians were killed. 22 were children, or sorry, at least 22 were civilians. 17 were children, four were women. In that same time, 360 people were injured, two-thirds were civilians. 151 children, 58 women, and 19 elderly. Do the innocent die? What a question. The effects of weather change are most felt by the poorest on earth. And Eliphaz asks, do the innocent die? Jeremiah knows better. In Jeremiah 12, 1, he says, Lord, you always give me justice when I bring a case before you. So let me bring you this complaint. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are evil people so happy? A friend of mine says, uh, money can't buy happiness, but it can buy you a jet ski. And I've never seen anybody crying on a jet ski. Unfortunately, we probably won't come to clarity on why bad things happen to good people or why evil exists. But what I hope we can come away with through looking at Job is a way to allow suffering to change us, to shape us into more loving, more compassionate, more justice-centered people. But that's going to take listening. Because the reality is most of us don't suffer all that much. We need to listen to people who have suffered and who are suffering. Yeah, I know that we all have struggle, I get that. However, people all around us and around the world face tremendous suffering. And they, they live through it and they become very, people of great depth. Even though I have myself faced some suffering, some rejection, I hardly feel qualified to talk about it. I really don't have much to say. And I often approach those who are experiencing suffering in the same way Job's friends do. With hollow words and with blame. Who's at fault? There's this great setup at the beginning of Job, Job and it's, it's really this, I kind of think it's like a comical play at the very beginning. I'm going to read it to you right now. It's from Job, uh, one, Job 1, 6 to 12, and I'm reading from the message. One day, when the angels came to report to God, Satan, who was the designated accuser, came along with, with them. God singled out Satan and said, What have you been up to? Satan answered God, Going here and there, checking things out on earth. God said to Satan, Have you noticed, my friend Job? There's no one quite like him, honest and true to his word, totally devoted to God and hating evil. Satan retorted, So do you think Job does all of that out of the sheer goodness of his heart? Why, no one ever had it so good. You pamper him like a pet, make sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. Bless everything he does, he can't lose. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away everything that is his? He'd curse you right to your face, that's what. God replied, we'll see. Go ahead, do what you want. With all that is his, just don't hurt him. Then Satan left the presence of God. Well, I hope we don't base a lot of theology on that opening passage. But there are really some important things that happen there that we're confronted with right in this opening section. And we could call it barter and blame. Right? Satan, the accuser, he's going around the earth and he sees how people are. He sees their natures. And so... He challenges claim, the claim that Job is such a great person of faith. He challenges God's claim. Of course they're a great person of faith. They have everything given to them on a silver platter. I wonder how often I have similar thoughts like Satan, right? Our faith is based on how we see God responding to us, what we see God giving to us. We're struggling with something, so we pray, And if God answers our prayer in a way that we perceive as being fair, our faith is strengthened. And then we give testimony to the goodness of God. It's not a bad thing. However, if our our wishes aren't granted by the eternal genie, we fall into blame. Gustavo Gutierrez calls this the barter conception of religion. It seems like we have this idea that God follows a tit-for-tat thought process, right? Which actually flies in the face of what Scripture tells us. We think that if we follow God, our kids are going to do well in school. They'll never smoke marijuana. You know, if we follow God, all our bills will be paid and we'll have a place to live. But if we were to look at Scriptures, we would see that we follow the one who said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Even Satan sees how faith can be based on the expectation of reward for good behavior or for punishment for poor behavior. He says, do you think Job does all that out of the goodness of his heart? This this idea of barter is super well expressed in, in this prayer that many of us have prayed, right? God, if you just get me out of this, I'll do this. That's our approach. But we like to point our fingers so where do, we, where do we point our fingers for the, the struggling of innocent people, for the suffering of those that don't deserve it? If we look at this, this intro to Job, we could point to Satan. The devil made them do it. Isn't the devil such a great scapegoat? He's the one in the story convincing God to test Job. Job. But wait a minute, we could, we could also blame God. I mean, God, after all, is in, control, is in control of all of this. Or we could blame our ancestors. We could go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, blame Adam and Eve for eating the apple. Take note that the devil's there too. He's an excellent scapegoat. The problem with all this pointing is that, the, the problem for us pointing over there for blame is that it keeps us from looking at ourselves. What I see as an important lesson in Job isn't the answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? It's that we need to stop trying to point our finger over there. Stop trying to find scapegoats. Stop trying to make enemies. As we look at the rest of Job, we'll begin to see that his friends actually try to make Job the scapegoat. It's your fault. You must have done something. But the reason that Job is successful at navigating his suffering is he refuses to enter the blame game. We've already looked at this this opening scene, right? We blame the devil, we blame the God. But the biggest section of the book will be Job's friends blaming him. But Job doesn't blame. Oh, he asks a lot of questions. He weeps. He asks why he was even born. But he doesn't point the finger out there. Or even to himself. He accepts that pain as part of life. I hope for us this story, this, this story of Job, looking at Job, it will be a story of conversion, a story of transformation. This suffering, pain, the sheer absurdity of it all should point us to the most absurd image we can think of, the cross of Jesus Christ. When we face situations that seem unfair, Shouldn't we be able to identify with the one who was innocent but took on all of the blame? He became the ultimate scapegoat, the one that we pointed to. The sheer absurdity of suffering is lived out fully in the cross of Jesus, in his suffering and his death. Unlike the author of Job, we know that part of the story. But even without the image of the cross, we see Job walk through terrible things without Casting blame without pointing fingers. He's a picture of someone who's been transformed from blaming and bartering. So is it possible for us to to move away from blame and bartering? To see things with new eyes? As I was thinking about this, I was reminded about a story my mom told me about my grandfather. My grandfather was a pastor in a small town in Newmarket, which used to be a small town. It's no longer a small town. And uh, he, had, he was, had schizophrenic tendencies. So he was removed from the pastoral role. And as often people who are, had mental illness, um, what often happens is they're over-medicated. And he used to walk throughout the day through the town of Newmarket, shuffling as he did. And the new pastor of that church saw him one day walking by. And in his mind, he thought, what a wasted life. What a waste. And that man came to my mother not much after that and said, I saw your dad the other day. And I thought, what a wasted life. All that suffering for nothing. All he does is walk around. And he said, I was convicted because God said to me in the way that God says to us, that man's praying for you right now. Can we change our mind about suffering? Can we see it with new eyes? The question keeps coming up, why does evil exist and why do good people have to suffer? We keep pointing outward. I'm in the midst of something internal or walking with someone who is suffering. But what if I, what if, sorry, we normally point outward, but what if we turn this question inward? Why does it seem that I actually need suffering to be broken out of my apathy? Why do I need suffering to change? For me, the pattern goes like this, right? I have an experience, and I learned something new. I'm excited about it. I feel good about it. And then I feel like I have control over it. But that thing becomes attached to me like a leech. And, and I wear it kind of with pride. And it isn't until I'm shaken out of my stupor by pain that I realize that thing isn't everything. In fact, it might not be anything. Like the story of my grandfather, the pastor thought he knew what made a person great in God's eyes, until he was confronted with his own lack, his own lack of vision or understanding. Last week, Mark talked about baptism, right? A beautiful symbol, one that we still fight over, right? cause we don't use enough water or we use too much water or the water's too cold or the water's too hot how long you hold them under wh- whatever meanwhile we miss the point and often it's suffering that has to break us free from these things i used to be pretty big on immersion i think immersion is such a beautiful picture of a baptism sorry if you don't understand the language dunking somebody under the water because it's such a beautiful image of of death and rebirth. But when a good friend of mine was dying from cancer at Guelph General, you can bet I went and sprinkled some water on him when he asked for baptism. And it was beautiful, and it was good. Suffering, if we let it, shakes us awake. It reminds us that everything is not about us, that we don't have everything figured out. But only if we let suffering do that for us. Richard Rohr says, if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. I think that's true. As I've spent time with people who have gone through serious trauma, I've seen it to be very true. Right? Many people who suffer abuse end up focusing the pain inward. Or they develop fen- defense mechanisms to keep themselves from being hurt. Right? They lash out. I do this with my small amount of suffering and if I do that, I need to be very compassionate for those who have really suffered. If a person experiences severe trauma, trauma, their brain puts them into survival mode and they detach from the pain. They can experience pain without feeling it. It's called disassociation. Sometimes the trauma is such that the person relives the trauma over and over again because they were unable to experience the pain connected to the event. And therapy for that means going back and connecting the pain to the event that happened so it can be processed. The pain has to be processed. And while that's extreme cases, it seems to be that most of us do not want to face pain or suffering, or any trial. And so I feel like we we are people stuck often, myself included. So the question is, can we transform pain? Can we transform our pain? James one twenty four says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will, become, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Consider it an opportunity for pure joy. How many things do you need to change for that to be true in your life? Pain is inevitable. What we do with the pain is choice, mostly. And I say that because I think people that experience severe trauma have way more barriers to this. So what do we do about suffering? If it's inevitable and at some level necessary for us to change, what do we do with it? The only thing I know is to look at the cross. Job didn't know that God would enter into our skin and enter into the systems of the world and enter into suffering. But we do know that's probably why we're here today, probably why we're gathered. The absurdity of the Creator entering into creation, the sinless one becoming sin, the loving one being hated, should compel us. Jesus went through suffering to go to the Father. And whether We get it or not, it seems to be the path. Jesus went through suffering to identify with us. This is where the image of the cross can be so beautiful for us. We worship a suffering God. I, for one, I know when I was brought up, we we weren't allowed, not we weren't allowed, but it was frowned upon to have a crucifix instead of just the cross, right? All those in evangelical circles know you're not supposed to have Jesus on the cross. I love the image of Jesus on the cross. It's a suffering God. This should knock us off our horses, the high horses. We worship a suffering God. Can we gaze into that image long enough for it to to transform us? Can we behold the suffering of our Lord so that it transforms our pain into music for the world, into art? In some ways, that's what Jesus on the cross did, right? He turned suffering into art, and it has been made into art throughout history. And my hope is that as we journey through Job, we are helped to transform our suffering into beautiful images that others can also gaze at. Let's pray. God, you spoke the words through Jesus, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we ask for strength to change our pain into something that doesn't weigh us down. But instead helps raise others up. Remind us in the midst of pain that you entered into pain, into rejection. And so we are not alone in our suffering. And give us compassionate hearts to walk along the road with others who are suffering. Amen. Um, Thank you for coming. Uh, go in the grace and the peace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.